if you have the word of this God, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 4. And in just a minute, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover tonight, going from the end of Acts 4 through Acts 8. We're going to read a lot of texts, but before we jump in, there there is an assumption that is inherent in these verses that we're about to read that I want to make apparent in this room. An assumption in Acts 4 through 8 that undergirds everything here that, that I want to make sure is, is clear, if not assumed, in this room. So here it is, and I, I didn't put it in your notes, but you might want to write it down at the top because it's going to drive everything. Here's the assumption. The purpose of your life as a Christian, the purpose of your life as a Christian is to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's that's the assumption. The purpose of your life as a Christian is to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. The, the purpose of your life is not to attend church. The purpose of your life is not to have a good marriage. The purpose of your life is not to have a good family. The purpose of your life is not to have healthy spiritual well-being. Now, all of those things are, are good, and they need to be present. We need to gather together with the church. We want good marriages. We want good families. We want healthy spiritual well-being. But all of those things are so that. Here's the purpose. So that... You might advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. The reason why we need good marriages is ultimately so that we can advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. We want the gospel to go to the end. That's the purpose that's driving everything here. And what I want us to see tonight is that when that is the purpose of your life, advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth, when that's the purpose of your life, then Nothing can stop you from accomplishing your purpose. When that's your purpose. Because that's God's purpose for you. And God can't be stopped. Robert Coleman wrote the classic on disciple making in the last part of the 20th century. And he he said this. He said, world evangelism is the divinely ordered goal for all of us. Not only is it attainable, it is inevitable. Whether or not we believe it, someday the gospel of the kingdom will be heard to the ends of the earth. Matthew 24, 14. The God of the universe will not be defeated in his purpose. Listen to this sentence. He said, any activity not in step with God's design for human destiny is an exercise in futility. The sooner we realize this and align our way with his, the sooner we will be relevant to eternity. In other words, anything we do, it's not in line with God's purpose in humanity and human destiny. It's it's futility. So I want to urge us tonight, I want to urge you as individuals and as families in this room and to urge us as a church to, to give ourselves to that purpose and in so doing to know that we can't be stopped in the accomplishment of that purpose. Now, the world will try to stop us from advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Satan will try to stop us from advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. He is, he is doing that now. Satan is distracting us from that purpose. Satan is distracting people all across this room from that purpose, isn't he? Satan is convincing us that there are more important things in life that we need to give our time to, our energy to, our money to than the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. He will distract us. He will seek to divide us. Satan is all the time turning Christians inward toward each other in conflict with each other. Satan desires to destroy us and in so doing keep us from accomplishing this purpose. Satan is, at this moment, attacking marriages all across this room. Many, many of you 
are in the, in the middle of that. Satan is attacking families all across this room. There are battles raging around this room for holiness and purity right now. And, and many seem to be, feels like losing those battles. There are, there are battles with materialism and consumerism raging around this room. B battles that we are blinded to. We don't even see his battles. Satan distracting, dividing, seeking to destroy. What I want to show you, though, is that Satan's strategies are not new. They have been there since the very beginning of the church. And the church that couldn't be stopped then is the church that can't be stopped now. Not when that's the purpose that drives everything. So what I want to do is you've got your notes. There are actually four prayers, but I'm going to add one. So I want to show you five prayers that spring from, that I want us to pray together as a church, springing from end of Acts chapter 4 all the way through Acts chapter 8. So as we go through these chapters, I just want to pause along the way and say, let's pray this together. As a people who have locked arms together, this is what it means to be the church. We've locked arms together in the accomplishment of that purpose. We want to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, so I want us to pray these prayers together tonight, this week, as we read through Acts, end of Acts 4, all the way through Acts 8. And, and just in our faith family as a whole. So let's start in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. This is where we, we left off, and, and Bart walked us through some of this. I want to recap and then move into Acts 5, 6, 7, and 8. Remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were brought before the ruling council, and persecution had, had now begun. Persecution of the church had now begun in the book of Acts. So they were released, verse 23, and they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All right, first prayer. I want us to pray together as a church, as a people who have locked arms together in the accomplishment of that purpose, advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Oh God, give us confidence in prayer. Give us confidence in prayer. Now, Bart mentioned this last week. I just want to make sure we don't miss it. We pray to the one who is in control of the world. We pray to the one who is in control of the Lord, of the world, sovereign Lord. That's how they start their prayer in verse 24. Despot, absolute authority, Bart told us. This is Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it belong to the Lord. Psalm 22, verse 27. Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over all the nations. Psalm chapter 47 Verse 9, the kings of the earth belong to our God. Psalm chapter 66, verse 4, all the earth bows down to him. And the early church knew this. They knew that God was sovereign over everything. Even they, they talk about the cross here and they say, you predestined this to take place. Herod, Pontius Pilate, these rulers who were conspiring against him, they were doing what your hand ordained for them to do. They knew that everything that was happening around them when they were being now persecuted and being threatened, they knew that there wasn't one detail of what was occurring that was not under the sovereign control of God. And this was foundational for them to know that nothing was going to happen to them except that which God 
allowed and God ordained. There's a, there's a book I read a while ago and it, by a guy named Joseph Sohn, Joseph Sohn, who was a pastor in Romania in the midst of persecution in Romania. And this book called Suffering, Martyrdom, and Rewards in Heaven. And it's basically a, a thick theology of suffering and persecution written out of the overflow of Scripture and his experiences in persecution and being interrogated and beaten and abused and held under house arrest and all sorts of things. And, and what he talks about is he talks about how what got him through all the interrogations and the beatings and the abusing, uh, abuses, what got him through it all was the realization that these guys who were doing this, these soldiers that were doing this to him, were only doing what God and his sovereignty ordained for them to do. Listen to what he, what he writes. He recounts one time when he was being interrogated by six men. And he said to his interrogators, what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. The interrogators looked puzzled. And Sohn said, my God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will only do to me what God wants you to do to me. And you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my God. To say to persecutors, this is, you're an instrument of God. This is something between God and me that he is allowing and ordaining. Someone said, every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. I want us, I want us to think about this. For many in this room, following Christ will likely not involve interrogation and abuse and beatings. I say many, not necessarily most or all, because the reality is the more we as a faith family are intentional about engaging unreached people groups around the world with the gospel, the more that will become an ever-present reality for some in this room. We'll talk about that more later, but the reality is many will, will not experience that, but but we will face circumstances and things in our lives that we did not expect or would not have chosen. And I want to remind you that no matter what happens in your life, God is in control of every detail and He's sovereign over it all so that when cancer strikes, you know that cancer is not sovereign. That God is sovereign. And cancer is merely an instrument in the hands of God that he will use to teach you or me to trust in him, to lean on him, to find strength in him, that he will use to advance the gospel through you. That's the purpose. That's why that purpose is so fundamentally important. If the purpose of our lives is to advance the gospel, then we will gladly accept whatever comes our way and pray that God will use that in our lives to advance the gospel. The purpose of our lives is not good health. And so if, if we are disease-ridden all of our lives, then so be it before a sovereign Lord, use it to advance the gospel. We pray. That's how we pray. There are, there are other things, things I know that are going on in your life or your family right now that you didn't plan or you wouldn't have expected or you would have never imagined the circumstance you find yourself in right now. But the beauty is God is not surprised by your circumstance. He's sovereign over every detail in your circumstance and he has sovereignly ordained it for this purpose, to advance the gospel through you. We pray to the one who is never surprised by anything. Anything. He's in control of everything everything in the world. And here's the beauty. We pray to the one who is always faithful to his word so that when we walk through difficulty, through trial, through persecution or cancer or other circumstances, whatever it might be, sure, you or I, we don't know what is going to happen to us even this week, but we do know this. When we, when we get in a confusing situation, we can ask God and he has promised to give us all the wisdom we need. James 1, 3. 
When we are anxious, he will give peace, Philippians chapter 4. When we feel lonely, he will be with us, Matthew chapter 28. When we are weak, he will be strong on our behalf, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He will be faithful to his word always. That's why Jesus said in, in John 15, you remember, he said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Ask whatever you wish according to my word. John 14, it said the same thing. Whatever you ask in my name, I will give to you. We have a God who is faithful to provide for his people what they need for the accomplishment of his purpose. That's the key. It's not ask whatever you want. Well, I want a million dollar home. So God, you say whatever I ask, you give to me. No, this is the whole point. If the purpose of your life is luxury in Birmingham, then yes, ask for that. But that's not the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is the advancement of the gospel. So ask God for the best place to live in Birmingham to advance his gospel. He will do it. He's faithful to his word. Now this changes the way we pray, right? We're praying to the one who's in control of everything in the world and who's always faithful to his word. We start to pray for, what do they pray for? The honor of Christ. You get to Acts chapter Four, verse 25, and they start quoting from Psalm chapter 2, the psalm that talks about how the nations will come to Christ as his inheritance. That's what they're praying for. They want the honor of Christ to be made known. The honor of Christ for the boldness of the church. Did you hear what they prayed? Now, Lord, look upon their threats and protect us. No. No, they don't pray that. They don't, they don't say, Lord, look upon their threats and stop them from happening. No, they don't, they don't pray for the persecution to stop. Instead, they pray, whatever happens, enable us in the middle of it all to speak with great boldness. The honor of Christ and the boldness of the church and, and the advancement of the kingdom. You heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of Christ for the advancement of your kingdom in this world. So, how does this affect with the way we pray? We've got teams, for example, from our midst who over the next week or two are going to Atlanta, inner city Atlanta. We've got a team going to the Middle East. We've got a team going to Southeast Asia. How do we pray for them? Do we pray for their safety? Do we pray that everything will go smooth on their trip? Now, I'm not going to say it is bad or wrong to pray for their safety or for a smooth trip. There's certainly no scriptural prohibition against praying for these things. But I do want us to see that there is, there is higher praying that we need to be doing. Because more than we want their safety, we want the honor of Christ and the advancement of the kingdom through them. And if that means that they are put in dangerous situations... Not foolishly, of course, but if they are put in dangerous situations under the sovereign hand of God, then so be it, and God enable them to speak your word with boldness in the middle of it and advance your kingdom in the middle of it. If that means everything on this trip goes wrong, then enable them to adjust to what your spirit is doing and be used of you to advance the kingdom. You do whatever you desire, God, to advance your kingdom through them, no matter what that costs. That's a dangerous way to pray, isn't it? Not when the purpose of our lives is to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. It just makes sense. That changes the way we pray in Birmingham. What if the highest thing on your list of prayers in Birmingham should not be the comfort of your kids? Much higher than that is the advancement of the kingdom. More than ease in this life and protection and safety and security and all these things that we exalt and we look to the world to find. There's bigger things at stake here. We want the honor of Christ in Birmingham. We want the advancement of a kingdom in Birmingham. That changes the way you pray. So God, give us confidence in prayer. Help us to realize who we are praying to and help us to realize what you've told us to pray for. God, give us confidence in prayer. Second, God, make us generous with possessions. God, make us generous with possessions. Chapter 4, verse 32. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Listen to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. John Calvin said about that paragraph, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. Did you catch what, what verse 32 said? No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What a statement. Now that is not, it is definitively not communist-driven socialism. That is gospel-driven sacrifice. It's brothers and sisters who realize that nothing they had belonged to them. And this is the realization that we need to come to as individuals and families and as a faith family in this room. We own nothing. Brother or sister in Christ, you own nothing. Christ owns everything. Everything. Your house is not your house. And neither is your second or third house. Your car is not yours. Your clothes, not yours. There is absolutely nothing in your bank account that is yours. Everything is his. When Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 33, if anyone would come after me, he must give up everything he has. What he meant in the original language of the New Testament was, if anyone would come to me, he must give up everything he has. That's why you need me to bring about those kind of revelations before you. Everything. Nothing is yours. That changes the way you live. When you begin to think, all right, if, if Christ was really in control of everything, then where would he have me live and what would he have me drive and how would he have me use this money? And that's where we come face to face with the reality. It is his to use however he desires. It's not Ours. And when we realize that, we begin to give humbly. There's no pride here, no competition for who can give most. This is not forced, guilt-driven giving. It's gospel-saturated, grace-driven giving. It's people who are, united, who are united together in Christ, in the gospel, giving out of the overflow of their relationship with Christ to each others. So that, verse 34 says, there was not a needy person among them. You might have a note in your Bible. If not, you might make a note. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. God had said to his people in the Old Testament, there's to be no poor among you. That was God's design, and yet we saw it as we read through the Old Testament all last year, over and over again. We saw injustice and oppression of the poor and exploiting the poor among the people of God and the judgment of God coming upon them for that. He had said, there's not to be any poor among you. And then when you get to the birth of the early church, we see the statement, not one needy person among them. It's there because they're giving humbly to one another. Out of the overflow of the reality that Christ owns it all in the first place. We give humbly and we give sacrificially. People are selling land here. They're selling houses. They're giving sacrificially and extravagantly. Oh, I, I want to camp out here longer, but we don't have time tonight, so... So I'm going to wait until another, another day. But I want to exhort you, encourage you to let this paragraph just soak in your heart and mind. And, and let's ask God 
to take this middle upper class church in Birmingham, Alabama and show the world a radically different view of possessions. Let's ask God to do that in this church. Let's God, ask God to do that in churches all over the place just like this one. I read something this last week. It said 80% of the world's evangelical wealth is in North America. And that total represents way more than enough to fund the fulfillment of the Great Commission. He has given it to us. He has given it to us. The question is, are we going to use it for this purpose, advance the gospel to the ends of the earth, or are we going to throw it at all these other purposes? I'm convinced that materialism is one of the biggest hindrances to the accomplishment of the Great Commission in our day. So God, do a work amidst us where humble sacrificial, extravagant giving. It's all over the place. And I want us to pray about what that might look like in the days ahead. So we'll talk about that another day. We give humbly, we give sacrificially, and we give honestly. We give honestly. And that's where Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 comes in. We're not going to read it again. but You would think That when people die in the offering, it would hurt church attendance the next week. That's what you would think. People keeling over in the offering, you wouldn't expect this to be a good method for church growth. Yeah, listen to this. After that passage we read earlier, verse 12 says, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean powers, un unclean spirits, and they were all healed. People were coming, and see this, the power of God was evident. And it was evident because God was dealing seriously with the purity of his people. This is where I want to add in a prayer that you just, I would encourage you to put in your notes somewhere there. Just a prayer that's not in your notes, and I think we'll have it on the screen. Oh God, help us to live in purity. Oh God, help us to live in purity. I want you to see in Acts chapter 5 that God is extremely concerned about the purity of his people. Oh, just, just kind of come in here with me for a second. God hates sin in your life. He hates sin in your life and my life. He hates sin in the church. And sin, even the smallest sin, so destructive. Remember, Joshua chapter 7. Remember Achan? One sin. Amongst the entire people of God. One sin. And everyone in the camp was affected. They tried to advance. And they couldn't. Because of one man's sin. So... Here we are. We want to be a people that are advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I say to you, do not harbor sin, hide secret sin in your life. Don't do it. For your own sake, don't do it. For the sake of everybody else in this room, don't do it. And if that is not enough, for the sake of people in this community who are lost and on their way to hell, 
And the gospel needs to advance to them. Stop playing with sin. Oh God, may men who cannot get over pornographic addiction, may that not keep the gospel from advancing in Birmingham and to the ends of the earth. There's bigger things at stake here. This is not just about one person's sin. This is serious to God. God, purify your people. Help us to live in purity. The beauty is he has sent his son to buy holiness for us. He's died on the cross. Let us not trample on the blood of Christ as if it means nothing or affects nothing. This is a gift that God has given us to walk in purity. Let's live in it. And in the process, let's experience his power. We want to see his power at work, and yet if we harbor sin in the camp, we'll miss it. God, help us to live in purity. By your grace, none of us is perfect. None of us is perfect. All of us are prone to, to fail. I'm at the front of that line. So let us confess our sins to each other. Let us fight against sin with each other. Let us not go casual in that battle because we want the power of God for the purpose, advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. God, help us to live in purity. Two more prayers. Next, God, grant us joy amidst persecution. God, grant us joy amidst persecution. Now, here's, here's where it gets really interesting. I want us to read a good chunk here in chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Follow this. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So, so they're put in prison. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the synod of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Where did these guys go? They were in prison. Where are they now? And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. You would think at this point they would have gotten the hint that these guys couldn't be stopped. You put them behind bars, and the next morning they will be doing exactly what you were trying to prevent them from doing. But what, they, what did they do? The captain with the officers went and brought them, out by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, it's a great line, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Is verse 41 not beautiful? They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy. Not, this is not suffering for suffering's sake. This is a people who are identified with Christ. And in their identification, identification with Christ, they are suffering for Christ's sake. And in so doing, they are joyful. Joseph Sohn, listen to the story he tells. Romania, he says, I remember one Monday when two officers were interrogating me. About midday, a general came into the room. He signaled with his hand for the other two to leave. And he began to curse me and hit me, slapping my face and hitting my head with his fist, finally knocking my head against the wall. I screamed intentionally. I shouted so that the other detainees in nearby rooms would hear me. What the general was doing was clearly illegal. That, of course, was why he had ordered the two other officers out of the room. He wanted no witnesses at my trial. He kept on for a while and then left without another word. The two officers came back and resumed the interrogation as if nothing had happened. That was on Monday. So on Thursday afternoon, the general returned. Again, he motioned with his hand for the other two to leave. I braced myself for a second round of beating. But the man that sat down behind the desk and said, Don't worry, this time I am calm. I have come to talk to you. Now the Lord has promised that when his people are questioned, the Holy Spirit within them will do the talking. I can testify to this truth. I myself was surprised as I said, Mr. General, because you came to talk to me, I want first of all to apologize for what happened Monday. The General was surprised. Let me explain what I mean, I said. On Tuesday... I was kept here the whole day without being interrogated. I had plenty of time to think. All of a sudden, it dawned on me that this is Holy Week. And sir, for a Christian, nothing is more beautiful than to suffer during the time his Savior and Lord suffered. When you beat me, you did me a great honor. I am sorry for shouting at you. I should have thanked you for the most beautiful gift you could have ever given me. Since Tuesday, I've been praying for you and your family. I saw the man choking. He didn't know what to say. He tried hard to swallow and then said, well, I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. So let's talk. We talked many days after that, and eventually he said, would you put on paper the things you were saying to me? I want the president of the country to read these things. From this I learned that no one, not even a communist, is beyond the reach of Calvary love. These are savable people, redeemable people like anyone else. They desperately needed to see Christ in me. So here's the question. Let me ask you this. Do you want people to see Christ in you? This is the audience participation part of our program. And do you want people to see Christ in you? Okay, that's good, that's good. If you want people to see a suffering Savior in you, then how will that be possible if everything always goes well for you? The reality is, Christ will be most clearly displayed in our lives not when things are going well and we have all the things this world runs after. The world sees that brand of Christianity with religious attendance tacked on on Sunday and says means nothing. People though will sit up and take notice when you are stripped of the things of this world, when you walk through difficulty in this world when you're not running after the things this world runs after, and in the middle of it, you have the joy of Christ. So are we prepared 
to embrace suffering in identification with Christ so that they will see Christ in us. This is the story of the New Testament church here, and it only gets deeper in Acts chapter 6. Verse 1 says those days the number of disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and these other guys. They sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This is a picture of Satan tempting to divide the church, disrupt the church. It's obviously important in the church, in the midst of mission, to care for one another, to care for needs in the church, and to share ministry toward that end. And to guard prayer and ministry of the word. This is totally a side note here. And I'm not sure exactly how to get into it. Besides just saying, if I could, I'd like to be just totally vulnerable with you for a second. This passage sums up a struggle in my own life, especially over the last last few months. If I could just be totally honest with you, I, as a pastor, have been, over the last six months to a year, going at a pace that is simply not sustainable long-term. A pace that is not healthy for my relationship with Christ, a pace that is not healthy for my relationship with my family, and a, a pace that is not healthy for my leadership in, in this church. I found myself doing a, lo- a lot of different things and. And oftentimes, ministry of the word just gets pushed to all-nighters. Not, not a few Sundays where, uh, maybe that's where the chair is coming handy. Uh, because all-nighter on Saturday night has led to, to Sunday trying to catch up. And, and the ministry of the word does not need to be relegated to the middle of the night because there are other, other things going on. And so I'm... I'm in the process in my own life. I would just appreciate your prayers for me as I try to readjust a variety of things in my life in order to give myself to that which is most important. And making some big and small changes, whether it's pretty much for the most part getting rid of email to a variety of other things. And, and it's, all, it's, it's my own fault because there are so many brothers and sisters in this faith family who can share some of the ministry responsibilities that I've been giving myself to. I spent time talking about this with the elders last time we met, and they were very encouraging. And, and the reality is there are, there are many meetings or issues or things that I've been walking through in different circumstances that other people could do, could do far better than, than I could do. And so I would appreciate your prayers for me in that and, and also your understanding and and us looking not, not just to one person or a few people to do what, what God has raised up an entire body to do as, as, we, as we grow together. And, and the result here in Acts 7, chapter 6, verse 7, is what I pray for us. That the word of God would continue to increase. The number of disciples would multiply greatly in Jerusalem because we are, we are sharing ministry. And so, anyway, thank you for your prayers. And that I, I want to love Christ well, and I want to love my family well, and I want to love this, this church well. And I want to steward any influence he entrusts beyond that for the spread of the gospel and the glory of God. So I would just appreciate your prayers and how to prioritize that which is most important. So Stephen is the man. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. He's raised up full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. 
And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So what happens is Stephen's been accused of speaking against the law and against the temple. And so in chapter 7, he begins a speech. We're not going to have time to read the whole speech, but from, from chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 53, Stephen just plain brings it hot. And, and he, he says, you think I'm blaspheming the law? You've missed the whole point of the law. It's been fulfilled in Christ. You think I'm blaspheming against the temple? Our God does not live in houses made by human hands. The temple, you're, we are the temple. God has opened a way for man to be with him through Christ. And so he preaches the supremacy of Christ. And listen to how they respond, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They pelted him with rocks until he died. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The first martyr, at least that we know of, first man to die in the name of Christ. And on that day, it became clear. It had been clear before this day that if you follow Christ, you will be questioned. You may be interrogated, brought before leaders. You may be flogged, abused. But on that day, it became clear that if you follow Christ, you may lose your life. And this is the story throughout the rest of this book. We will see people questioned and abused, stoned and beaten, shipwrecked and, and beheaded. You, you cannot walk away from reading Acts 1 through 28 and think that advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth, fulfilling this purpose for our lives, will be easy. That is an impossible conclusion from, from reading this. It's why when, when Paul gets to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, everyone who wants to live in godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's, it's a given. You've got this in your notes. Our suffering... If our purpose is to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth, suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable. This is where I, pastorally, I want to speak tenderly yet realistically to us, members of this church. If we continue... to pursue the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth, suffering will be inevitable in our midst. Yes, suffering and circumstances that God may, may bring here in Birmingham, and then if we've got a thousand people every year going out in other contexts around, around the world, the likelihood is some terrible things may happen in, in the eyes of the world at least we send teams to unreached people groups that have resisted the gospel, suffering will be inevitable. Even here in Birmingham, on a different scale, but we go into the city proclaiming the gospel, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. We will not be applauded by the world. Yes, if we, if we just go give food and water and do different things like that, humanitarian needs, yes, the world will applaud us. But if we do that and in the middle of it proclaim Jesus as the Christ, 
the world will hate us. It's not my words, it's Jesus' words. The world will hate you because of me. I am sending you out, he said, like sheeps, sheep among wolves. When they persecute you, not if they persecute you, when they persecute you, here's what you do. It's Matthew chapter 10, straight from Jesus' mouth. He said in the middle of it, have no fear. He said, don't be afraid. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do you realize what Jesus just said there? Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, what's the worst thing they can do? Kill you? (laughs) Is that encouraging to you? For for me to say, all right, we're going to go after the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth, but don't worry. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you would die. (laughs) How is that encouraging? Here's how it's encouraging. We who are involved in this mission, we're on a mission that not even death can stop. Our suffering is inevitable and our mission is unstoppable. Not even death can stop us, brothers and sisters. Death is how the kingdom of Christ expands and spreads, right? Is this the cross? Stephen here in Acts chapter 7, what happens? Okay, so he's stoned. Listen to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Stephen stone, everybody's scattering. Oh no, this is not good. Oh, this is great. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word wherever they went. <laughs> they, they thought stoning of Stephen, this would squelch things. This just spread everything. The gospel had been stuck in Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. Now the gospel is finally going to Samaria. And it's because of suffering and persecution. I love this. Mark this down. Satan's strategies to stop the church will only and ultimately serve to spread the church. (laughs) Satan's attempts to stop the church will only serve to spread, to advance the church. So let's bring in Sohn on this one. He wrote, during an early interrogation, I had told an officer who was threatening to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, Those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. (laughs) Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Mr. Sohn would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. (laughs) He writes, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I'd kept a low profile. Because I wanted so badly to live, I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. You cannot stop people 
really believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't stop people who believe that. You let me live, I'm going to preach Christ everywhere. Kill me, better. Everlasting joy and spread of the gospel in my death. So are, are we a people who believe that? Do we believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain and therefore are we a people who are willing to give whatever? We talked a couple weeks ago, whether it's building or programs or this or that, all the way down to our very lives. When, when we are, we will find ourselves on, on, amidst an unstoppable purpose. God, give us joy amidst suffering and persecution. And finally, God, send us out in proclamation. We're just going to fly through this one. We're not going to have time to read through the rest of chapter 8. You'll read through it this week, hopefully, as you're walking through the word. God, send us out in proclamation. The, the, this chapter begins with these people who are scattered. They're preaching the word wherever they went. The Holy Spirit will lead us. That's the beauty. The Holy Spirit's not just on one person here. The Holy Spirit's on all of them. They're preaching the word as they go. All of them preaching the word. The Spirit of God leading all of them. Just, this is where we understand what we do on a Sunday in this room, right? We gather together for worship. We gather together around the Word as a community of faith to see His glory, to behold His glory, to, to hear from Him and be conformed into His image. And then, in just a few minutes, we're going to scatter. And today, from this place, 4,000 plus people will scatter all over the city. And the design in is that the Holy Spirit will lead us to preach the Word wherever we go. And when that's happening... You cannot stop the spread of the gospel in Birmingham. Now, if the spread of the gospel in Birmingham is depending on getting them in here, yes, okay, that's limited. But no limits. When every single one of us is led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will lead us. The Holy Spirit will empower us. Oh, and you read Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 25. You'll meet a guy named Simon who thought he could buy the power of the Spirit of God, who thought he could manufacture a movement of God. That is not the case. There's... I think some parallels there between ways we try to manufacture the movement of the Spirit of God. You trust Jesus. Trust Jesus and the power of the Spirit of God is on you. You believe in Jesus. You proclaim Jesus and the power of the Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit will empower us and the Holy Spirit will use us. You get to the end of this chapter, Acts chapter 28, 8 verse 26 through 40. And the Holy Spirit just so happens to take Philip into the middle of a desert where it just so happens an Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot is riding by. And it just so happens that Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the scriptures in the Old Testament. And it just so happens that scripture relates directly to his state in life. And it just so happens that Philip is there and is able to explain that scripture to him. And it just so happens that once this man hears about Christ in the scripture, he believes. And it just so happens that right about that time, they come upon some water and it just so happens that this man says, hey, can we go down to the water so I can be baptized? And they do. It just so happens that this man who believed is baptized, taken back up to the chariot, and it just so happens that right after that, Philip is zapped away to go to another place. Don't you want it just so happened to like that in your life? And this is where we realize the same spirit that's on Philip and at work in Acts chapter 8 is the same spirit who's on you. And the same Spirit who is working in your life. Do you think it's an accident that you are working where you are working right now in Birmingham? Do you think it's an accident that you live where you live right now? Do you think it's an accident that you have relationships that you have? Do you think it's an accident? Nothing is an accident. He's got the whole thing rigged. And the Spirit is on you to use you and me in the same way. Lead us, empower us, and use us to advance the gospel of God. He has given us His very power, His presence, to accomplish this purpose. What more could we want or imagine? The Spirit will do this. Use us to advance the gospel of God and in the process to show the greatness of God.
We, we are, we are weak people when it comes to the task of proclamation of the gospel. And we think, oh, I'm just not prone to that. It doesn't come naturally to me. That's actually the way it's designed. It's designed that way so that you feel weak at every moment. And you need his power. And anything that good, that good that happens in you or through you can only be attributed to his glory. The picture is a people who no matter what this life brings, no matter what circumstances they face, a people who have one purpose. We want to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. And with that purpose, they run. And no matter what comes their way, they know if God is for them, nothing can stand against them. And because this is the purpose of God, they can live and they can die accomplishing this purpose and know they will succeed.